Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, thrilled to have you here for another epic debate, or I should say discussion today, as I think this is going to be a really interesting one, folks. Want to let you know, if it's your first time here to Modern Day Debate, I'm your host, James, and our goal, our vision here, is to basically give everybody from every walk of life an equal shot to make their case on a level playing field. So we're really excited to have two distinguished guests here today. It's going to be a lot of fun. Want to let you know a couple of housekeeping things for the channel. First, then we'll talk about the format and then introduce our guests. First is if you have not heard, we are very excited. Modern Day Debate has invaded the podcast world. So if you can't find us on your favorite podcast app, just let us know. We'll work hard to get on there for you. Also, very excited. If you love debate, folks, and if this is your first time here, consider hitting that subscribe button as we have many more debates to come. We're very excited about, for example, the resurrection debate this Friday between Matt Dillahunty and Dr. Jonathan McClatchy. So that should be a lot of fun, folks. And with that, I want to start talking about the details for today's discussion. So what we're going to have is a pretty flexible five to ten minute opening statement from each side and we'll start with Dr. Ross and then we'll kick it over to Tom Jump and also after that we're gonna have mostly open conversation followed by Q&A so if you happen to have a question for the question and answer session just shoot it into the old live chat and if you tag me with at modern day debate it makes it easier for me to get every single question in that list also super chat is an option which you could either ask a question or make a comment to which of course the guests would get a chance to respond to and it'll push your question or comment to the top of the list for the Q&A. We also ask as always as you be your regular friendly selves we appreciate that as we really do appreciate these guests they're I mean, this is a quality discussion. I'm really excited for this one, you guys. But they're doing it just because they love to do this. And so we really do want to show them our appreciation. And with that, we're going to get into the introductions. Tom Jump is no stranger to the channel, pictured on the right. Tom has thousands of followers on his YouTube channel, which regularly hosts debates between scholars from all walks of life as well. So want to remind you that both Tom Jump and Dr. Hugh Ross are linked in the description, folks. So if you want to hear more, what are you waiting for? What better time to click on their links down below to get to learn more about them and their arguments? And so also want to let you know, very excited as with Dr. Hugh Ross, I have to let me show you this, guys. I just I'm so excited because this is a book I had read about 10 years ago and Dr. Ross, Dr. Ross was actually one of the co-authors on this and so he and some colleagues had written this book on this topic of the debate today. We highly encourage you to check it out. It's a really good read, really fun and very excited to give you this formal introduction for Dr. Ross as well as as an astronomer and best-selling author, Hugh Ross travels the globe speaking on the compatibility of advancing scientific discoveries with the timeless truths of Christianity. His organization, Reasons to Believe, is dedicated to demonstrating, via a variety of resources and events, 
that science and biblical faith are allies, not enemies. So this is going to be a really fun one, folks. We are going to kick it into this actual discussion or debate today with Hugh Ross taking the lead on his opening statement. Thanks again, Dr. Ross, for being with us. The floor is all yours. Well, thank you. And as you mentioned, I'm one of the three authors on this book, Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men, subtitle, A Rational Christian Look at UFOs and Extraterrestrials. People can get a free chapter of that book at reasons.org slash Ross. And that book will give you in detail my position. I'm just going to be brief here. Um, you know, as an astronomer, I believe that it's not possible uh, for physical aliens like us to engage in interstellar space travel. In fact, uh, my latest studies indicate that even interplanetary space travel is out of the question. Uh, so far as little green men like us, uh, no, I don't think that's an option. Uh, but I've been studying UFOs since I was 16 years of age. Every university where I served, they made me the fellow that had to deal with all the people claiming to have had counters with UFOs. And I can tell you that about 99% of what people reported to me as UFOs, either as a natural explanation, uh, it's a human phenomena, typically some military uh, secret spacecraft, a kind of event, or it's a hoax. But there's a 1% residual. And what's interesting about the 1% residual is that we actually have evidence that it generates real effects uh, where you actually go to the crash sites and, and see the effects, but there's no debris, there's no artifacts. When they go through the atmosphere, they violate the laws of physics, uh, which indicates we're dealing with something, albeit real, is not physical. And so I take the same position as a half dozen other uh, you know, PhD level physicists who have dedicated more than 10 years to studying the database. Namely, we're dealing with something that is interdimensional. Uh, we're dealing with uh, you know, phenomena that's coming to us from dimensions beyond the physical dimensions and the laws of physics of the universe. Now, I had uh, Carl Sagan as a professor when I was at the University of Toronto briefly, and he basically dismissed UFOs, but that's because he had the worldview there's no such thing as non-physical reality. And, uh, you know, as a Christian, I believe that God has created both in the physical realm and the non-physical realm. So I'm willing to entertain the possibility of non-physical reality. And what we describe in this book as a correlation uh, between the level of uh, occult involvement and people who are experiencing encounters with UFOs particularly the close encounters. And again, if anybody wants to look at that, uh, you know, we have the physicist Alan Hynek, who basically developed these categories of the kinds of encounters. But it's been my experience that the level of these, what I would call the real UFOs, not the 99%, is that the level of incidence is extremely low in the 48 states, quite a bit higher in Hawaii and Alaska, and very much higher when you go to certain regions of France, uh, if you go to uh, equatorial Brazil, uh, or if you look at what was going on in the Soviet Union before the collapse of the communist government. I've been back to Russia since, and the level of these experiences has literally plummeted, but it's plummeted in direct proportion uh, to people walking away uh, from the occult. 
Uh, so in a nutshell is where I'm coming from. I'm not an expert in abductions. My co-author, Ken Samples, uh, he's a cult expert. And so he wrote the chapters on alien abductions. But I have talked to people who claim to have been abducted. And again, I take a skeptical approach. The vast majority of people have come to me claiming to have been abducted by UFOs. They really haven't been abducted. Uh, they're dealing with some kind of psychological thing, something that they really desire. Uh, but again, I find a small residual that I think has legitimacy. And basically talk about in this book is how we can put these kinds of ideas to a rigorous scientific test. It's the only book I know on UFOs uh, that takes a kind of scientific approach. Absolutely. Thanks so much for that, Dr. Ross. We will kick it over to Tom for his brief opening as well, and then we'll go right into that open conversation. Tom, thanks for being back, and the floor is all yours. Yeah, so I'm going to keep it pretty brief, too. Uh, my understanding is I pretty much agree with you that 99% of all the claims of UFO abductions have been shown to be just natural phenomenon, and there is definitely like a 1% that hasn't, but that's just, just like in anything in science, there's always 1% of something that can't be explained in every field. I don't think that gives us license to imply that it's a supernatural thing in any way, unless there is like a scientific way to demonstrate it. So I'm really interested to hear what this scientific uh, methodology you're proposing is to demonstrate the supernatural cause of UFOs. That'll be really interesting. You bet. With that, we'll kick it right into open conversation. Thanks, gentlemen. Well, first thing I wanted to note was you said you debated with Carl Sagan earlier. Uh, no, I had him as a professor at the University of Toronto, and he talked about extraterrestrials. I mean, as you're probably aware, he was a real fan of the idea that yeah. there were extraterrestrial beings like us. And I was a, a graduate student <laughs> basically saying, you know, I don't think so. Uh, and then he talked briefly about UFOs and said, you know, uh, since there's no such thing as non-physical reality, they can't be real. And if I agreed with his worldview, I would agree with him that if indeed there's no such thing as non-physical reality, then there can't be any truth to the UFO phenomena. Well, I mean, I don't think his conclusion was based off of that as a presupposition. I think it's a conclusion based off the evidence. We have no evidence of the supernatural. Therefore, to suppose <laughs> that something is supernatural would be an unreasonable conclusion. So I think that, I don't think it was because of his worldview that he rejected it. I think it was because of the evidence that he rejected it. I don't think there is any evidence that the supernatural. Could you tell me a little bit about your scientific proposal to demonstrate uh, the, the UFOs are supernatural in some way? Well, Carl never really looked at the evidence. Uh, you know, people like Alan Hynek did. Uh, people like Jacques Vallée have. <laughs> Excuse me, I have a little bit of asthma I'm dealing with. But... Uh, what I document in Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men is every PhD level physicist has devoted a minimum of 10 years to studying the UFO phenomena has come to the conclusion we're dealing with something that's real, but we're dealing with something that violates the laws of physics, which is why you've got people like Jacques Vallée saying we're dealing with something interdimensional. I could broaden that to say maybe we're dealing with something transdimensional. Uh, but what all these physicists are agreeing on, we're dealing with a phenomena that doesn't fit within the physical constraints of our universe. And so, and basically they, well, the other thing they all agree on, they all agree that what we see in this residual, the 1%, is a one-to-one -one correspondence with what we see in the occult and witchcraft. 
and none. I'm the only one of these authors that is a Christian. The rest of them are agnostics or atheists. And uh, they say, well, whatever is behind the occult and witchcraft is also behind uh, these residual UFO phenomena, mainly because they document uh, that 0% of it uh, is beneficial. It's 100% deleterious. People have actually gotten injured and died from these phenomena. Uh, and in terms of the physical evidence that they cite, it's basically those 2,000 plus incidences where you have multiple observers watching the UFO go through the atmosphere uh, where they can do triangulation, determine the velocity. And you know one reason why they say we're dealing with something outside of the physics of the universe uh, when you track the velocity, it's 18 to 25,000 miles per hour, and yet there's no sonic boom and there's no heat friction as this so-called object goes through the atmosphere. And then when you have, have witnesses where they see it crashing into the earth, you go to the impact site and there's many clay places where you can see a crater as much as a foot deep crater. Uh, if there's snow, the snow is melted. If there's vegetation, they can document radiation damage to the vegetation. And yet in 100% of those cases, there's no debris, there's no artifacts. If it was a spaceship crashing into the earth, there would be debris, there would be artifacts. But 100%, there's nothing there uh, to show physical evidence of this event. Uh, but mainly what I've done with my co-authors, I got Mark Clark, He's a national security expert. And basically he wrote the chapters on, you know, is our government covering up evidence? I mean, that's recently come in the news that our government indeed is covering it up. And as someone who has spent two decades in national security, he basically says, we're overestimating the capacity of our US security system. It's not that good. There's no way that they could cover up actual physical evidence. And then Ken Samples, he basically works with me to make the point uh, that what's really interesting, if you look at uh, Alan Hynek's classification system, the only individuals that have the close encounters uh, where they're within 500 feet uh, of the event, uh, where they're actually claiming they get communications through automatic writing or where they're injured by the event, uh, that it only happens to people that are deeply involved in the occult. And where I close the book off is by saying, those individuals that uh, shut down their occult activity, the UFO phenomena goes away 100% of the time. If they divorce themselves, cut themselves off from their occult activities, no more UFO incidences. And the reverse is also true. If they open themselves up to the occult in a significant way, they will have these experiences. And I saw that personally when I was speaking to scientists in the Soviet Union in the 1980s and early 1990s. I mean, that was a time when the Soviet Union was giving generous grants to universities, uh, to physics departments to study occult physics, hoping to develop weaponry they could use against the West. And consequently, many of these professors uh, had these close encounters. Uh, but now that they've stopped funding occult research, that has disappeared. And so the number of people in Russia who claim to have UFO encounters has plummeted, uh, but it's in direct proportion 
to the plummeting of their involvement in the occult. So that's kind of the bottom line. And uh, so I kind of end the book by saying, this is happening to you. This is how you can get out. Because uh, basically we spend a lot of the book pointing out, this is not something you want to pursue. Uh, it has 100% of the time, you're going to have very unpleasant consequences. The best you're going to come away with is recurring terrifying nightmares. Okay, I've got a few questions about that. The first would be the breaking the laws of physics. Like, I don't think anything you described technically breaks the laws of physics. For example, we can get shadows and beams of light that can go faster than 25,000 kilometers per second and have no airwaves because it's, it's light, it doesn't have any mass. So we can just have certain kinds of visual effects where like light can bend due to hot air or cold air and it can cause things to appear to see like they're moving at 25,000 kilometers per second. And yet they're just not, it's just the light doing it. So that doesn't seem like it would break the laws of physics unless you assume there was actually a physical thing there, which I don't right. think- No, um, I would agree with that. And other places like the, the debris you mentioned, also that would also not necessarily break the laws of physics because essentially you could have a asteroid or something that would be falling through the atmosphere at a, a tremendous speed and it would be breaking apart and dissolving because of the pressure. And it would essentially break apart to the point where it's just a tiny rock at the point where it hit the ground, but it would still create enough of an impact to leave some resulting effect with no debris. So that also, I don't think would break any laws. Of well, physics. that's where I would disagree. Cause I mean, um, as an astronomer, if you've got some kind of asteroid or comet striking the earth, you will find something. Uh, you're going to get isotope evidence. You're going to find tiny pieces of it. I mean, a good example of that is a Behringer a crater in Arizona, you know, blew out a crater almost a mile across. Yet the biggest piece we have is only a couple of feet across, and most of them are just tiny pebbles. But the best evidence we have is you get an iridium isotope a signature that tells you, uh, or causing uh, the vegetation to be damaged the way it is. It's something non-physical. Well, to me, it seems like it could perfectly well be physical if it was just a smaller asteroid. Like the, the Beringian crater was created by a big asteroid. So obviously it broke up into lots of pieces and there's lots of residual stuff we could measure. But if it was a small asteroid, it would be very hard to measure any of that. If it broke no, Even up a small one, you're going to find something. I mean, if you've got some kind of uh, damage effect on the Earth, uh, you're going to find something. I mean, that's what happens every time people see a bolide coming through the atmosphere and people realize it actually hit the earth, they send a team there and they always find evidence, even with the smallest ones. Well, like for example, it's the ones in Russia, which essentially just evaporated in the atmosphere and just used a sound wave, which broke lots of windows and trees. That left an impact, but there was no crater or anything. So that created an impact on earth where we didn't find any parts to it at all necessarily. Oh, but you do find isotope evidence. Where, because it didn't, it didn't hit the ground. It didn't hit the ground, but I mean, uh, you're going to have stuff that's falling down at the molecular level. And if you search that ground area, uh, you will see the isotope signatures that tells you it was this kind of comet or this kind of asteroid. And that's what they did with these events in Russia. They were actually able to determine what kind of object uh, had that uh, shock effect in the atmosphere because of the isotopes they were able to analyze. Uh, and if you've got isotopes, that tells you it's something physical. Well, I don't think it'd be true that necessarily anything physical would produce those isotopes. That's, I don't think that would necessarily be the case. Well, I mean, 
if you've got something coming through the atmosphere, it impacts the atmosphere. You're going to get, again, heat friction. You're going to get a sonic boom. And uh, yeah, you might get the shock wave that knocks on all these trees, uh, but you're going to get a follow from it. That's basically what they do. They may not have any pebbles from the event, uh, but they will be able to uh, see, uh, you know, the the isotopes of the of the fallout that tells them what was really going on. So you don't actually have to find chunks and pieces of the object to determine what kind of object or even what size. I mean, that's what's interesting by the amount of isotope. Uh, abundance they see there, they can determine how big it was and, uh, you know, exactly what happened to it. So what do you mean by isotopes? I suppose isotope is just like two different <laughs> forms of matter, right? So when you say they measure the isotopes, what are they measuring? What they're measuring is the difference. I mean, iridium is one of the ones they look at, especially because that's one of the easiest ones to look at. Uh, where they basically say, okay, do we see a different iridium isotope ratio than we do for stuff that we know is strictly terrestrial? So uh, that's how they determine not only whether it was an asteroid or a comet, but they can actually determine what kind of asteroid uh, struck. Because they're very interested, for example, in finding these metal asteroids, and uh, they'll have a slightly different signature. And iridium is just one. I mean, there's several uh, things we can look at. They also look, for example, at the uh, what they call the highly siderophil elements, uh, because if you got one of these metal asteroids uh, striking the Earth, it's going to have a high abundance of platinum and gold and osmium. So they'll look for that. Uh, but isn't it true that some asteroids would not leave a significant difference in isotopes? It's not necessarily well, the case that any of them would all necessarily do this? Uh, the only exception would be if you, for example, had a meteorite strike the Earth somewhere else, eject Earth material, and that Earth material fell back to the Earth. In that case, you would get the isotope signature of Earth material. Uh, but I don't even know if that's ever, ever been done, because uh, obviously the vast majority are not going to fit into that category. What is interesting is they can actually determine uh, whether a meteorite came from the moon or from the Mars or from the asteroid belt or came from the Kuiper belt. Again, the isotopes tell them uh, the origin uh, of the of the object or the uh, debris that they found uh, or the molecular uh, evidence that they have there. So it doesn't necessarily break the laws of physics, it's just not within the known ones yet, but that doesn't seem like it violates the laws of physics in any way. Well, it violates the known laws of physics. In other words, we're dealing with something that violates the law of gravity, the law of electromagnetism. Uh, you know, so uh, thermodynamics is being violated. Well, I mean, if it, like the example you gave of something hitting the Earth and it being ejected from Earth, I mean, that doesn't violate any of those and it doesn't leave an isotope mark. So it's definitely possible that something can do this without violating the laws of physics. Um, so, so it doesn't, it seems like the cases you're listing are things we just, haven't been able to explain yet, which is happens all the time in science, but I don't think it's any real demonstrable evidence of it literally breaking the laws of physics. I think that would be really cool if it did, but it's just- Well, I think it physics. actually does in the sense that, uh, you know, to try to claim that these 2000 plus incidences are all fallback of uh, the results of collision events elsewhere that brought back earth material. I mean, the statistical probability of happening that is basically zero. 
2,000 mean, plus events. You mean like, what, what are these 2,000 events? Like crop circle kind of events? No, no. I mean, if you're talking about the residual UFO database, it's upwards around 100 million. But if you're talking about cases where you've got observers that are actually able to see the thing go through the atmosphere, uh, where they can determine where it hit the ground, where they go to the site, and they can actually see that there's a crater there, uh, damaged vegetation, melted snow, you know, those kinds of things where you've got substantial uh, observations and physical evidence. Uh, that database is a little bit beyond 2,000 separate incidents. And so all it's not of these, a small database. And all these have been confirmed scientifically. There's been scientists that have gone out there, measured the isotopes, and confirmed that these don't have any, and then verified that these are true. Well, there have been a number of physicists, uh, you know, like Jacques Vallée and John Keel and Alan Hynek, who basically devoted their lives to saying, you know, I'm skeptical. Uh, let's actually check out the evidence. And uh, they were shocked just how much evidence there really was. And basically, that was their conclusion. Uh, we're not dealing with something we can sweep under the carpet. There's just way too much evidence. And that's one reason why we had uh, uh, Jimmy Carter when he was elected president. One of his campaign promises was, you know, if I'm elected, I'm going to get to the bottom of this UFO phenomenon. And so the first thing he did, one of the first things he did when he became president, he contacted NASA and said, I want you to study this. NASA gave him a very interesting response. If you can provide physical, tangible evidence with real artifacts, we'll investigate it. But if you can't, we won't. And that's what stopped it, because in the UFO database, there are no artifacts. Uh, there is no debris uh, that you can. And that's one reason why I say we're dealing with something that's non-physical. If it was physical, there would be debris, there would be artifacts. So I'm with NASA. NASA's mission is to study the physical. And since this is outside that realm, they said, get somebody else to look at it. We're not doing it. So for example, but couldn't it be caused by, for example, an illusion or a delusion or just a refraction of light in the sky, which they saw and they calculated the impact crater and the impact crater was there, but it wasn't caused by any, it was just caused by something on earth. And it happened to be the case that they saw a delusion that made it look like this impact crater. They assumed it was created by some, their delusion. Well, I agree with you that the vast majority of what people report as UFOs falls in that category. After all, we're looking at 100 million uh, separate reports. Uh, so, and as I told you at the very beginning, in my own investigations, 99% uh, fall into that category. Uh, but you know, to claim that this crater was made by something physical and terrestrial within the laws of physics, we would expect to find debris we'd expect to find artifacts, we'd expect to hear a sonic boom, there'd be heat friction, and we see none of that. Well, just assume it wasn't the meteorite, assume it was something that started on Earth, like a guy who just put some TNT there and blew it up or something. Like there could be lots of different human-based ways to create craters that don't involve anything in space. So someone saw an illusion that they thought something was coming from space, and some guy just, just plowing his field and hit a gas line or something, and that caused the crater. Like, aren't those natural things? Definitely well, they are, uh, but when those kinds of uh, explosions take place, you've got tangible evidence at the site. I mean, that's the distinction. Uh, there's no evidence of uh, TNT residue. Uh, all you see is this crater. You see melted snow. You see damaged vegetation, but that's it. 
And, you know, that's what's caused uh, people like Jacques Vallée to say, we're not dealing with something physical here. We're not dealing with some, because his first response was, it's like the crop circles. We're dealing with hoaxes that people are pulling off. But he says, this doesn't fall in that category. Are you saying they tested for every possible naturalist, naturalistic explanation that we know of on Earth in every single one of these cases? Not in every single one of the cases. I mean, in each case, they go there and they say, we can't find any debris. Uh, we've gone to the site. Uh, we've scoured the place. There's nothing there uh, except for the fact that we got a crater. Uh, we got melted snow. We got damaged vegetation. And moreover, when they look at the damaged vegetation, uh, they see that it has what several physicists have said. We see the signature of radiation damage, but we don't see any isotopes that tell us whether it's done by cosmic rays. It looks like radiation damage, but it looks like radiation damage that's unlike any radiation effect we've ever observed. And again, that's one reason I conclude we're dealing with something outside of the laws of physics, because the fact that we can't identify the kind of radiation uh, that brought about this damage of the vegetation, I think is quite interesting. Oh, uh, so you say it's outside of the laws of physics, but obviously it's inside of some of the laws of physics and having a physical interaction with things like radiation. So it's being very selective with the laws of physics it's going outside of it. So wouldn't it be reasonable to, to conclude that maybe it is actually just an unknown natural thing in the law of physics that we just don't know about yet, since it does seem to be in many of the laws of physics, just not a few of them? Well, you know, I come from a Christian worldview perspective. And in that perspective, we have God creating two different species of intelligent beings intelligent beings that are physical like us and constrained by the laws of physics, where we can't leave uh, the physics of this universe. Uh, but the Bible also says that God created angels and says that they live in a completely different dimensional realm than we do. But unlike us, they have the power to come into our realm and leave our realm. We can't enter their realm, but they can enter ours. And uh, so that's one reason why we brought the book out because coming from a Christian worldview perspective, I think we can go a little bit further than the other books written by physicists where they just say, you know, we see a correspondence with the occult. We see a correspondence, a one-to-one -one correspondence uh, with witchcraft, uh, but that's outside of our area. And so they stop there. Or you got people like Jacques Vallée saying, you know, this is not our physics. It's some other kind of physics. It's physics that points to the fact that there must be an interdimensional realm. And so that's been, you know, he's devoted six decades to this, basically saying we got an overwhelming case that we are dealing with something uh, that's affecting us from other dimensions. There's many, many scientists who have uh, interesting theories on their own that are not taken seriously by the consensus because there isn't enough supporting evidence, even though the individual scientists may think that it's very well supported. So. I definitely uh, don't want to discredit any of his work and just say he's a crackpot or anything. I think he's perfectly, he may be perfectly reasonable to believe what he has found as evidence, but it hasn't done much to convince the rest of the scientists. Because as far as I can tell, we have an unknown phenomenon that we can't explain. And you proposed a hypothesis that it's um, demons of some kind, non-physical things. And I'm proposing an alternative hypothesis, just an undiscovered physical force of some kind. Why would we prefer what would indicate the supernatural explanation? To basically deal with these kinds of questions. And so it's been publishing articles for 
gee, three decades now, uh, but basically making the point that uh, scientists who actually do engage with us, we really do see a consensus. As you're probably aware, most scientists say, hey, I'm only gonna deal uh, with physics. If it's outside of that, I'm not interested. Uh, but the journalist scientific exploration basically was founded, okay, we're scientists, uh, let's actually look at these kinds of possibilities and uh, just, just see what we come up with. And what's interesting there is, you see that Jacques Vallée is in the mainstream. He's not outside the mainstream. And if you look at people like Alan Hynek and uh, Jacques Vallée, uh, they have very high credibility. I mean, that's one thing our US government noted. We can't say this is just crackpot stuff because look at all these physicists that have such high integrity and credibility. And all of them are saying that this is something outside of our physical realm. Uh, but again, the military is basically saying if it's outside our physical realm, we're not going to worry about it. Yeah, I mean, I would agree it's outside of the known physics for sure. But when you mentioned that the people who work in the field see positive results, well, that's true of every pseudoscience too. Like people who devote their lives to homeopathy usually tend to believe homeopathy or people who devote their lives to Christianity or Judaism or Islam or the archaeology and Hinduism, they always seem to find positive results for their personal belief system, regardless of whether or not it's true. If you invest your world, you invest your life into a worldview or an ideology, you tend to find positive results for that ideology. And which is why we require that peer reviewed consensus process to filter out those kinds of personal biases. So I can totally understand why people who devote so much effort and time would find positive results just as a part of human psychology. But the fact that they can't produce like an artifact or something, something that would actually be an indication of their the alien hypothesis, then it just seems to be here's an unknown event we can't explain. And I'm going to come up with an explanation for it. And anybody can do that. Anybody can just say, I'm going to come up with a different explanation for it than yours. And, and now we have two equally, it seems like they're on equal footing, alternate explanations. And we want to see, well, which one of these isn't imaginary? Which one is real? And right. The scientific community says, if you want to do that, you got to make like testable predictions. Give me some kind of actual real evidence to support this, not just the fact that you come up with an explanation because anybody can come up with an explanation. And so what reason do we have to support this explanation that you've come up with as opposed to just anything else we can come up with? Well, that's why this journal was founded, basically saying, you know, okay, as something outside of understood physics, we shouldn't just let it drop there. We need to pursue this and actually figure, okay, what kind of cause that we don't yet understand can explain this phenomena? And that's where you see this back and forth uh, peer uh, review going on in this journal. I mean, I'll be honest with you, they're proposing dozens of different explanations uh, for this phenomena. But what I like about the journal, they're actually pursuing this scientific approach. Okay, these are different speculations that people are raising based on the database which one actually is comprehensive in explaining the phenomena we're observing. And this is where people like Alan Hynek and Jacques Vallée are saying, well, of all these different explanations that people have popped up, I mean, they come up with things as strange as maybe we're seeing something at the quantum level and an arena where there's different laws of the physics. There's lots of papers in that journal basically saying, we think this is attributed to as yet undiscovered laws of physics. And some have even proposed Maybe we're overlooking an anti-law of thermodynamics, what they call the fourth law of thermodynamics, where there's some strange phenomena going on where thermodynamics goes in the opposite direction. Wait, are uh, there already four laws? Zero, one, two, three, four? 
Well, I'll call it a fifth law then. There's three laws of thermodynamics that you'll see in textbooks. Wasn't there, I'm pretty sure there's a zeroth law of thermodynamics too. I saw that in a textbook. But. Yeah, a zero, first, second, and third. So if you yeah. want to squeeze a fourth out of that. Uh, but when they but, talk about the fourth law in the scientific literature, they're really referring to something where entropy goes backwards. So instead so, of things I, decaying, they, they improve. Yeah. So, so I definitely understand the perspective that people are arguing for their, their preferred hypothesis. That's totally fine. I mean, I can find uh, climate scientists who deny climate change, and they're arguing for their preferred hypothesis, saying the evidence indicates that. But what actually is there that can actually indicate this? What evidence do they say makes that hypothesis more plausible? Just the fact that they read the journal, they're published in the journals or argue for it doesn't give me anything to work with. It's just, this is what they're saying, but why are they saying it? What evidence do we have to support that conclusion? Well, the evidence is what I've talked about already. The fact that we've got these uh, crash sites, we've got these multiple observers. It's not a small database, it's a big database. And uh, where are these uh, physicists I think have really developed a consensus. It's really interesting that these kind of close encounters are only experienced by people that are deeply involved in the occult. Um, and when they leave the occult, the experiences go away. Uh, and they enter the occult, they come. And also explains why we see so much more of this in certain nations and others. I mean, I've spoken on this throughout the US and I encounter people like you all the time we were highly skeptical. But when I spoke to physicists in Russia in the late 1980s and early 1990s, it was exactly the opposite. They said, we're experiencing this all the time. We know it's real. Um, and, you know, and once they got out of their research on occult physics, uh, suddenly these experiences went away. And I actually saw this when I was on the faculty of Caltech. Uh, there were a couple of physicists there who said, hey, the Russians are doing this. Let's do this as well. And uh, they regretted it because of the effects. And then there's the astronomer, Peter Sturick. Uh, he was one of the founders of this Journal of Scientific Exploration. He surveyed astronomers all over the world because you know what they found in the database uh, is that UFOs are most frequently experienced at 3 a.m. in the morning on lonely country roads. And Peter made the observation, well, that's where we astronomers hang out. That's when we're outside making observations and all of our telescopes are by lonely country roads. So he surveyed all the astronomers and was shocked by how many of them had claimed that they had these encounters. I saw that myself when I was at the University of Toronto is there were two astronomers, every time they went on the telescope, they had an encounter with a UFO and there are a couple of us who are basically logging 1,500 hours on the telescope per year, uh, going on for five, six, seven years. None of us saw a thing. Those two astronomers, they were getting maybe two to three hours of observing time a year. Every time they went on the telescope, they had one of these encounters. However, as I got to know those astronomers, both of them were deep into the occult. So that to me explained why those of us who are logging 1,500 to 2,000 hours a year were seeing nothing, and they were seeing them all the time. And, well, it uh, seems to be pretty well explained by psychology is that if you have people who have more gullible personalities or are into more um, superstitious kind of beliefs, then they will most likely have more superstitious kind of interactions with what they believe in. So, for example, as a Christian, you have interactions with God when you 
pray and you talk to him and you see him act in your life. And then if you become an atheist, well, all those things kind of stop. It's not because necessarily because God isn't there anymore. It's just because your understanding, your worldview has changed that you don't see those events as having some kind of connection to the thing you're connecting them to anymore. So the fact that people who are into the occult would be more prone to seeing UFO experiences seems very reasonable from a psychological standpoint. Just like if you're a Hindu, you're going to have more interactions with Brahma. It makes sense from a psychological standpoint. So I well, don't... that's that's what interested Peter Sturrock. He says, you know, I can understand this with people who don't have a strong physics background, but uh, these are people who are tenured at universities um, and uh, they're not gullible. Uh, they're very skeptical in their, uh, in their way they live their lives. And so that's what got his attention is that, you know, it's not just the kooks out there in the fringe. These are people that are psychologically well-balanced. They're not gullible. Uh, they're very thorough in their research. And yet they're having these kinds of experiences. And so he's published extensively on this. Um, and again, I can back up what he said. I mean, I, I didn't talk to the astronomers he did, but I did talk to those in places like France and the Soviet Union and again saw this correlation. And I think what persuades me is when you leave the occult, these experiences go away. If you enter the occult, they come. If you go in there, they go away. And you know, from a Christian worldview perspective, the occult is driven by uh, these uh, angelic beings that are in rebellion against God. That's the other thing you notice is that when people get these automatic writings from these beings is that uh, what you see there is that it's a hundred percent deceptive. I mean, I find it interesting that there's a 4,000 page book, the Arantia book that was communicated to humans uh, through these UFO beings. A third of that book is denying the deity of Jesus Christ. Why would these be so focused on that? Uh, but Again, that's what uh, you know. J uh, John Keel was pointing out is that uh, hey, uh, it, there does seem to be this one-to-one -one correspondence which you see in demonology and the occult. I mean, I, I'd say that the same one-to-one -one correspondence exists between sightings of Jesus and Christianity for the most part too, but that's not. I wouldn't say that's evidence of Christianity. I'd just say that's evidence of people who believe it want to see it, and so they see what they want to see, just like. The sightings of Santa Claus are usually one-to-one -one with children because they, they believe Santa Claus exists. Um, you mentioned that the experts weren't gullible. I, don't, I definitely don't agree with that because there are cases like um, Banachek and James, James Randy, James Randy, who... I understand, yeah. They, they do the experiments. They do the magic thing to try and show, in the case of scientists, to trick the scientists to show that the scientists are gullible and they don't understand what's going on because there are a few famous um, musicians who were shown to not be real or legitimate who did the same thing who fooled the scientists into believing this so experts are definitely gullible for sure and that's why we require more of the consensus the kind of future testable predictions thing but you mentioned when i asked for evidence you listed the phenomenon like people see a thing uh in the sky that seems to not cohere the laws of physics and then we see a crater in the ground those are both experienced phenomenon but you can't use those as an explanation. Those are just the things we see. You have to say, well, well, why would this be better explained by the supernatural as opposed to an undiscovered law? And trying to use like a negative argument saying, well, the laws can't do X, Y, and Z. 
that that doesn't really work because we don't really know what unknown laws can or can't do. You would need to make some kind of testable prediction. Um, and the occult thing you mentioned of just saying that people leaving the occult will stop seeing UFOs. Well, I can make the same prediction about any religion. If people leave the religion, they'll stop seeing visions of their deity. That doesn't mean it's necessarily evidence of any of those particular religious beliefs in the same way it wouldn't be evidence that the occult and demonology are connected in the same way. It's just human psychology. If you believe a certain thing, then you're going to attribute interactions with the world to that thing. Um, so do you have any other kinds of like testable predictions you could make that could indicate your explanation as opposed to just any of the unknown natural things? Well, I think what impressive physicists have devoted a decade plus to studying this phenomena is that there's a one-to-one -one correspondence. You don't see exceptions. They were anticipating, okay, if this is just people having delusional phenomena, uh, then uh, we're going to see a dispersion. But there is no dispersion. They're all reporting the same thing. And uh, so, and then the idea that it's some undiscovered law of physics, uh, now that is testable in the sense that, for example, people who have uh, speculated there's a fourth law of thermodynamics where entropy goes the opposite way. Well, if that were really true, it actually rules out the possibility of physical life anywhere in the universe. So the fact that we're here actually proves there is no fourth law of thermodynamics. And you know, there's other ways. I mean, that's what people have done in this journal of scientific exploration is basically saying, if we're going to speculate new laws of physics that haven't been discovered, you know, what properties are you predicting? And can we test those properties? And so that's one thing that's come out of that journal is pursuing a thing where you got anti-gravity uh, or anti-electromagnetism or anti-thermodynamics, that doesn't work. Because if that were going on anywhere in the universe, uh, it would rule out the possibility of physical life everywhere in the universe. Because, I mean, yeah. they've actually speculated maybe we're living in an exotic site in the universe but the homogeneity and the uniformity of the universe is a requirement for life to exist anywhere in the universe. So these are the kinds of papers that are published in this journal. So I think they're really taking this uh, seriously, saying, okay, if we're going to speculate something other than the occult and demonology, then we have to come up with scientific evidence for it. And that's where they're basically saying, that's uh, where we're running into brick walls, and that's where they fall back and saying, no, it really does look like uh, there's this one-to-one -one correspondence. Well, you need evidence for both. If you say it's supernatural or if you say it's an undiscovered law of nature, you need evidence for both. And the fact that you've ruled out some particular undiscovered law hypotheses doesn't at all rule out the undiscovered natural because there's infinitely many potentially undiscovered laws that could exist. So just ruling out a few of them doesn't in any way rule out undiscovered natural processes one bit. But I do agree that if you do propose an undiscovered natural process, you need to provide evidence for it just like if you propose a supernatural thing, you need to provide evidence for it. And so right, far, right. the only evidence I've seen you permit, present is just the description of the phenomenon itself, which works for any explanation. Any explanation is going to be describing that phenomenon. And the connection between the occult and this experience, which I, I also had a question about that, but it seems like, again, that would be purely explainable by psychological phenomenon. The only, you're never going to see people in a country who's never heard of some religion have experiences of that religion because it's going to be specifically one-to-one -to, -one to their belief system. So it, the fact that it's one-to-one -one is usually evidence it's not the case, not evidence it is the case. And most of the UFO sightings I've heard of don't have any connection to the occult at all. Like many pilots see UFO sightings all the time. It's a common phenomenon. 
but most of those I would probably put into the explainable by natural phenomenon category. Yeah, so, I would too. So, so, so when you're talking about the one-to-one -one correlation, is this just a specific subset of those events that you're talking about have a one-to-one -one correlation? Yes, this is where Alan Hynek came up with his uh, encounters of the close kind, you know, first, first, second, third, fourth, etc. And basically said, hey, when you get into these really close encounters, this is where you see that correlation. Uh, but if it's a pilot in an airplane, where he's seeing something that looks like it's uh, uh, four or five miles away, uh, then uh, you don't have the data to really determine what's going on. And almost and most of those things have been explained as natural phenomena. I mean, one thing I've noticed is that uh, the human eye takes time to adapt uh, to different levels of illumination. So I've learned to ask the question, okay, uh, when you saw this UFO, how many minutes transpired between the time uh, you left your lit home and went outside uh, to see the phenomena. If it's less than 20 minutes, I know that that's something that can happen in the human eye where you see flashes of light. It takes 20 minutes to fully dark adapt. So, I mean, that's why, I mean, most of the people who have written on this say they can rule out 95%. As an astronomer, I've been able to rule out 99% because I've learned to ask these kinds of questions uh, where I can quickly discern, okay, this is this kind of phenomena uh, that's causing it. Uh, but I think that thing that impresses me is when you travel around the world and talk to people, it's those parts of the world where you've got a significant fraction of the population uh, deep into the occult, uh, believing in demonology and practicing demonology, where this phenomenon exposes such a degree that everybody believes in it. The skeptics are in places like here in the U.S., where the phenomena is just so low that uh, people say it's not real, it doesn't happen. And that's why, uh, you know, Peter Sturick actually began to interview these astronomers and discovered it's the astronomers who've never had any contact with the occult that basically say, uh, this is just fiction, it doesn't happen. But those who really have been in it, they say, oh no, we're utterly convinced it's real. And when I say one-to-one, -one, the fact that you're getting the same story I mean, this is what Jacques Vallée was pointing out. We don't see outliers. We don't see anomalies. We see this consistent uh, uh, account of what they're experiencing. That will be true to Jacques Vallée and Alan Hynek. They were agreeing that there's a variety of phenomena that can explain it, but that the range of phenomena must be occurring within something that is interdimensional. And so they said, if we're, if we're going to speculate interdimensionality, that opens up quite a range of possibilities. And so I'm not trying to put words in their mouth saying they've nailed down one particular uh, phenomena. Most physicists have, uh, but people like Jacques Vallée said, you know, I do see this one-to-one -one correspondence with demonology, but my position is it's interdimensional. And if it's interdimensional, that opens up quite a wide range of possibilities. But he's also saying we need to pursue that with rigorous scientific research. How is that different from witchcraft? Like, for example, witchcraft was really prevalent in the, the Dark Ages and the Inquisition when there were people burning witches and they said, oh, this person was a neighbor. They put a curse on me and they cursed my field and experienced this. And so witchcraft was very common back then. Everyone was experiencing witchcraft. But as soon as we discovered, you know, witchcraft doesn't exist, it all kind of went away. There's no more witchcraft. 
that doesn't seem like it's a one-to-one -one correlation of belief in witchcraft witchcraft occurs it seems more like the phenomenon doesn't exist because it would only exist with people who had this prior belief in them so it seems like if demonology was real it wouldn't be contingent on the occult it would be just a thing that existed in the world and so the fact that it's contingent on occult beliefs seems like it's probably based a mental phenomenon res resulting from those beliefs uh, like witchcraft or any certain kinds of religious experiences what's the difference there well for example uh, what a number of researchers have pointed out is that uh, people who have these close encounters less than 500 feet they will wind up with recurring terrifying nightmares uh, but the animals that are associated with them the dogs the cows the cats they get killed by the phenomena and so i mean the dog wasn't involved in the occult and yet the fact that the human was having this experience led to the immediate death uh, of the animals that are associated with them but the animals in the same area that were not that person's animals they're they're untouched so there's this selection effect and again we're dealing with uh, thousands of examples where that has happened people have been killed by these encounters so it's not just people having delusions and dreams and visions uh, there's actual physical harm uh, that's been coming upon people as a result of these encounters and the closer the encounter uh, the more likely they are to suffer serious harm and uh, you know as my colleague uh, Kenneth Samples has pointed out there are cases where people have actually been killed I'm guessing these weren't the people giving the stories uh... well the people who got killed weren't giving the stories but right. uh, so, so <laughs> their relatives someone... that saw the death did <laughs> so did they get killed during the, the encounter or did they die after the encounter? Is How does this occur? Like you're saying the animals no, we're, die. We're talking about they, they literally die on the spot. So, so, I, I, that, so that's someone, what impressed. Yeah, go ahead. So someone sees the encounter and they see someone die in the encounter and they just find the body afterwards? Is that? Well, I think that's what's impressed some of these researchers is that the human who has the encounter survives, albeit they have after effects but their animals get killed right on the spot in front of witnesses. And these are healthy animals. And then what they notice is the animals that don't belong to that individual, but belong to a neighbor, they're fine. Could, could you describe this for me? So there are a bunch of people. There's, there's the animals, there's the person who has the encounter, and there's these other people. So the person who has the encounter uh, supposedly gets seen, sees the aliens or the, the demons, and their animals die and there's this other person and they don't see the encounter they just all they see is just the animals around them die is that what's going on that's what's going on right they, they don't have the encounter the encounter is only because that's something we document in the book is that people that have these encounters uh, that only happens to individuals who are deep into the occult and the deeper they are the more likely they are to have these encounters and so you know i've made trips to alaska where i met all kinds of people who are having these encounters uh, but Alaska is a place where you got a whole lot more occult involvement than you do, say, in Idaho or Kansas. Sure, sure. So that would be an interesting phenomenon for sure. I've never heard of any cases where that that has occurred. That would be really cool to to see. I still still don't know if that would count as evidence. It's still just a phenomenon we can't explain yet. So, are there any future testable predictions you can make related to how to indicate this is supernatural as opposed to just an undiscovered physical thing? Well, I think you're onto something, Tom, in the sense this is something we can't explain with known physics. 
Uh, and this is why we have this journal saying, okay, let's look at non-known physics. And the, the journal is filled with articles where they say, let's restrict ourselves to physics that could fit within the space-time dimensions of the universe and see if we can make that work. Then you got others saying, well, let's go beyond that and consider possible phenomena uh, where we look at other dimensions of space and time or dimensions that are not even related to space and time. And so these are the kinds of discussions and dialogues that are going on. And I would hope you would agree with me at a minimum, this is at least worthwhile doing. Given that we're looking at 100 million people claiming to have these kinds of experiences, and given that this has been going on for, they can document this back to 3,000 years. So it's not just our, our own time. It seems to be in every culture. It seems to be ubiquitous to humanity. And it seems to be as, as, you know, a rather large database. So at a minimum, I would agree with Alan Hynek, uh, this is worth investigating. Uh, whatever it is, it's worth investigating because it's impacting a significant fraction of the human population. And if we oh, yeah, can help I totally them, agree. Let's I help think, them. Yeah. I, I think everything's worth investigating. I think discovering the truth about the universe is the most important thing we can do. So for sure, it's definitely worth investigating. And I'm aware of the the UFO sightings from 1500 BC or whatever. So I do know that those occur. But again, it seems that you, do you have any testable predictions that we can make related to the supernatural that can show that it, it exists as opposed to just, because when I say undiscovered law of nature, I mean, the discussions they have about what that could be, there's infinitely many that what they could be both in physics and out of physics. Like we don't know the physics behind dark matter or dark energy or, um, certain kinds of other physical phenomenon or entanglement, uh, quantum mechanics, emergent space-time, consciousness. There's all kinds of things we have no explanation for, but it doesn't mean it's outside of physics, just outside of the known physics, which is very, very tiny. We don't know nearly everything. I, I think to quote Thomas well, Edison, we only know a I think you're free to speculate that, but does it explain the database? And I think what is impressive is that the physicists who've really devoted their lives to studying this, 100% of them say, this falls outside of uh, what's conceivable within the space-time dimensions of the universe. And so that's where we see a consensus. We're dealing with something that is trans or interdimensional. Now that again opens up a wide range of possibilities. Uh, but I mean, if it really was something within known physics or physics that could be knowable, I would expect to see some departures from that consensus, but we're not seeing that. What do you mean? Because when you talk about what is conceivable, that's an argument from incredulity. The fact that we can't conceive of something doesn't tell us anything about what the universe is like. For example, we couldn't conceive of space-time bending before Einstein, and it was inconceivable. That was one of the main arguments made by philosophers against Einstein. Time isn't a physical concept. How could it possibly bend? Therefore, we reject general relativity. Yeah, uh, no, the, the, the boundaries in this discussion have been okay. Let's look at possibilities that take place within the space-time dimensions of the universe. And let's look at possibilities where we invoke other dimensions. And so that's kind of where the dialogue has gone saying, okay, the fact that uh, we agree that the universe is constrained by certain space-time dimensions puts restraints on the physics, given that we got physical life in the universe. So just the fact that we beings exist in the universe, the fact that we agree that there's these space-time dimensions, that puts constraints on our speculation about unknown physics that falls within that uh, category. 
and this is where these physicists are saying, boy, everything we know about the UFO phenomena tells us it doesn't fit within that paradigm. It's outside that paradigm. Well, again, when, when they say that, that's an argument from ignorance. They can't say that. It's not even plausible. You can't say, well, because of here, we know this little bit about how physics works. Therefore, nothing can possibly exist in space-time that could do this. That's, that's not a reasonable conclusion. It's always an argument from ignorance to say it can't possibly, or it transcends, or it's impossible. Well, I gave you an example. I mean, there has been physicists who speculated, like uh, Stuart Kaufman, for example, that there's this fourth law of thermodynamics we haven't discovered yet. Well, other physicists jumped in and said, if that is the case, what are the consequences? Basically, Stuart was speculating that to explain the origin of life. But then other physicists jumped in and said, well, if we take it to the degree that you are trying to take it to explain the origin of life, it rules out the possibility of physical life anywhere in the universe because of the anthropic principle. We know that to have physical life in the universe, the universe has to have certain properties. And therefore, uh, there's now a consensus in the scientific community we better stop trying to pursue a fourth law of thermodynamics. It's a waste of time. We can pursue other things, like maybe there's this uh, modified Newtonian dynamics that is affecting the behavior of galaxies. I mean, that's within the realm of possibility uh, that can be tested. Again, that's kind of what this journalist scientific exploration is all about. Basically right, saying, right. I totally agree. Yeah. I totally agree that there's certain categories of things, a very specific theory that we can say, if this theory is through, we can predict the consequences. We don't see those consequences. Therefore, this theory is not true. It's falsifiable right. for sure. Right. Right. But that doesn't in any way falsify the class of things like all things within the category of space time like that. That isn't really something you could falsify just based off of a few select theories that we can falsify. So the entire class of unknown natural things within space-time can't be falsified because we don't know everything within space-time. We only know- No, I would agree with that. But again, you know, trying to apply this to the UFO database, that's the challenge. What do you mean that's a challenge? Because from my understanding, like problem of underdetermination, any combination of phenomenon can be explained by infinitely many hypotheses. Uh, the hard part is trying to tie those into a specific theory, which can then make predictions and be shown to exist. And I don't see how the supernatural can do that any better than any of the made up physics ones. Well, again, you got people like Alan Hynek and Jacques Vallée saying, okay, we're looking at phenomena uh, that obey the laws of physics and are constrained by the space-time dimensions. Uh, we don't see any possible way to explain the UFO database. Therefore, we're saying we're dealing with something interdimensional. I mean, Jacques Vallée has written very lengthy books on this. As for your suggestion, for example, that I knew physicists that gave that a serious look that drew a different conclusion. Uh, but that's not what I'm seeing. Well, for sure. But I don't see how his argument is any different from saying the, the philosophers who said time can't bend, therefore it must be supernatural, essentially. Um, the fact that we can't imagine something being the case given our current limited understanding isn't in any way evidence that it is something else. So, well, again, Jacques is not using supernatural language. He oh, just, right. yeah, sorry. I mean, he's, he's not trying it. to argue for the supernatural. He's saying it's something going on in dimensions that don't fit within our physical universe. That's what he's saying. And, you know, if you read cosmology, you've got astrophysicists making the same kinds of speculations when they deal with the multiverse. So that's what he's saying. Is it something outside of all that? And uh, so this is where you're seeing the consensus. 
Right, right. That's where I agree. I agree that there are things outside of the known physics, which are probably just more physics. And I'm asking, is there any reason to believe that that something more is supernatural as opposed to unknown natural? Because just saying there is something more than the known physics doesn't indicate supernatural something more as opposed to just an unknown natural something more. That all depends on your definition of natural and supernatural. You know, and that's what Jacques has basically made the point is it's something outside of the space-time dimensions of the universe and the laws of physics. And what he means by the laws of physics are the laws of physics that for which there is no doubt that they exist. Things like gravity, thermodynamics, electromagnetism, the strong and weak nuclear force. And also he's making a point, if you're gonna speculate a fifth force of physics, uh, it's got to be able to be powerful enough to explain this phenomena without being discovered by their other scientific means. Well, it, I mean, could also one thing be, to, it could be an emergent interaction between those other forces, which you just don't know about yet. So it doesn't have to be outside of those, uh, the current laws of physics entirely. It could just be a new emergent phenomenon of those phenomena that we just don't know about yet. Yeah, again, at the 30th place of the decimal. Uh, but this is where Jacques is making the point. We're dealing with something that's a lot closer to us than the 30th place of the decimal. So this is basically we're saying this is where we put it outside of, well, maybe there's something going on that adjusts the theory of general relativity 40 places of the decimal out. And that's why we can't see it because we don't have the measuring capacity to see it. But uh, Jacques' point is we're looking at the U of O database. We're not looking at the 10th, 20th, or 30th place of the decimal. And therefore, this is why he says it's got to be something operating in dimensions outside of the dimensions of the universe. Yeah, it's an interesting hypothesis. I just don't think it follows from any of the evidence. Like, I'm pretty sure that there's infinitely many ways to explain that, that take nothing more than just there was some kind of an explosion and the wind blew away all of the evidence that, that was there. Well, so Jacques actually deals with that and just says, you know, that's not going to fly. And again, I would encourage you actually look at these, these journals, look at the, uh, uh, I mean, the fact that we have these physicists, all who've put more than 10 years of study into this thing. I'm the only one of these physicists that's a Christian. The others are all agnostics and atheists, and yet they're not disagreeing with me. And so I don't think you can attribute it just to the fact that, you know, I've got a worldview that's different than theirs. Uh, and so, and they're actually dealing with the evidence and you say, you know, prediction. That's one thing we tried to do in this book saying, here's what we found is, for example, Americans tend to be really naive about the occult. And so we helped them out in saying, these are things that if you do uh, from a Christian worldview perspective, you're inviting these interdimensional beings to impact your life. Take away the invitations, they can't touch you give them the invitations, they're going to come. And so that's where I would say this is a testable hypothesis. If you don't believe it, put it at the test and see what happens. Although I would caution you to avoid those things that are going to have deleterious impacts on your life. I, I don't think that's a novel prediction. That's the same prediction made in psychology for the past 500 years. If you play with Ouija boards, you'll make it, it'll seem like there's something giving you a word and it'll actually spell it a word. And really, we know it's just the psychology of the people playing with the Ouija board. There's no special dimensional spirit there. Same with stones. If you play with magic stones, you'll see these effects. Like uh, if it's uh, a stone that'll help you be more energetic, you'll be more energetic just because of the placebo effect. I mean, all of those things are predictions that have already been made in psychological fields many times over and have already been confirmed and made testable predictions and have all kinds of results that we already know 
show that those predictions have been true. So it doesn't seem to be a novel prediction that you're making. It's just like the sun will rise tomorrow. Like we already know that. So can you, like, why do you think that counts as a novel prediction that would actually indicate this being true when it's the same prediction that's been made with psychology for the past 500 years? Well, the very fact that it works, if you leave the occult, you stop having these experiences. And we're not talking trivial experiences. I mean, yeah, I do agree that people playing with magic stones, uh, you really don't see anything happening. People aren't being killed. They're not being injured. Their animals aren't being killed on the spot. They're not having these terrifying recurring nightmares. Uh, they're not getting communications uh, where they begin to go in a trance and begin to do automatic writing. Automatic writing that adds up to thousands of pages. That kind of stuff is not going on. Well, and so I think again- About two thirds of those examples are things I've exactly heard of from occult or, or Ouija boards and talking with the dead and magic stones and different kinds of things are exactly the same that I've heard of. Uh, I don't know about the, the dying animals. I've never heard that heard that happen before, but most of the other examples that you, li you listed are things I hear exactly from those kinds of people. Well, again, what these researchers are saying, there is a one-to-one -one correspondence between the UFO phenomena, the residual UFO phenomena, and the occult and demonology. And so when you raise examples from the occult and demonology, that's consistent. I think where you have a challenge with the UFO database. Number one, it's huge. We're not talking a few dozen isolated cases. We're talking tens of millions of reported incidences. And, uh, you know, we literally have thousands of places uh, where you've got a crash site that you can go and investigate. And uh, again, you've got people you can interview uh, where we have documented cases where there's been actual injuries, animals dying, people dying. And so, uh, and that's kind of what people like Jacques Vallée are saying is uh, we just can't sweep this under the rug. Real things are happening and they're hurting people. I think that's his motivation. He says, look, uh, I'm not a believer in God, but people are being hurt and I want to help them. We have to go to the Q&A pretty soon here. If you guys are ready for it, if there are any last points that you were just extremely excited to get in we could do that otherwise we've got about 15 maybe 20 minutes tops to do these questions that we have oh yeah i mean i just mentioned that i totally agree i think it is there are definitely real phenomenon that cause people to die all over the world and suffer and we know lots of those and they're not all attributed to the occult there's lots of the other things i mentioned also lead to death and pain and suffering all over the world voodoo does uh that's why they think that you can curse someone and kill them because it does lead to deaths and suffering and pain uh, for all kinds of things i don't and definitely i think it's worth investigating i think everything is worth investigating for sure but all of the things that he that you listed seem to be the same kinds of things other than like the animals dropping dead on the spot i haven't heard of anything that makes that kind of claim all the claims you've listed seem to be the same as any of the other uh, claims that are made by voodoo or uh, Ouija boards or astrology or any of the other kinds of science, uh, the, the ideologies that try to make these kinds of claims. I don't see anything different about the claim that you're making than the claim that they're making. It's just the generic kind of stuff that psychology has already predicted for like the past 500 years. And so if you could actually make novel tests and predictions or like the scientist said, present an artifact of some kind that could demonstrate this, that would be great evidence. I would be happy to accept it. I have nothing against the supernatural or aliens, but I just don't see any reason to believe it's true when it's most of the stuff that we can see is just explained by psychological phenomena. That's exactly my point, Tom. There is a one-to-one -one correspondence. That's what these researchers are saying. 
And moreover, our model would not predict that there would be artifacts. If you're talking about something that's interdimensional and outside the laws of physics, there won't be artifacts. I mean, that's what got these researchers interested. If there was artifacts, then we know it's part of the physics of the universe, but that's not what we're seeing. We, at some point, can jump. You guys ready for the Q&A? We do have a lot, sure. so we just had another sure. one fire in. Sure. Really excited to get to these. This has been a really interesting conversation, folks. So we hope you have enjoyed it as much as I have because I've really enjoyed it. And we will jump into it with Sentinel Apologetics, who says, Dr. Hugh Ross is my hero. And then in parentheses, Allahi as Salaam. I'm not sure if that's Hebrew, but you have a fan, Dr. Ross. So very nice. And Steven Steen, thanks for your super chat, along with, let's see. She calls herself stupid whore energy. She says any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I think this is a, a challenge to Dr. Ross. Anything that you'd like to say to that phrase, Dr. Ross? Well, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, beings that are more intelligent than us, but again, constrained by the physics that we are constrained by. They still have to obey the laws of physics. I think that's where Tom and I agree, is that this idea that physical aliens like us have come to Earth, that's simply not possible. Because uh, if you go through interstellar space, your spaceship will be destroyed by the particles and the debris there. I mean, we already know, for example, the biggest spaceship that you can send to the nearest star cannot be bigger than 10 centimeters across. Because if it is, it's gonna get destroyed. Or likewise, I think we now know that sending humans to Mars is, is not part of the uh, uh, possibility because to make that happen, you've got to put those beings inside a gigantic, stable magnetic bottle. And uh, there's now a growing consensus amongst physicists. We might be able to make a small magnetic bottle, but not one big enough to be able to protect astronauts on a trip from Earth to Mars and back. And so we'll have to send machines we're not going to be able to send people. That just got recently published, that if you expose humans to the radiation you're going to encounter between here and Mars, uh, where you don't have a magnetic bottle to protect you from that radiation, your digestive tract will be destroyed in three months. Really interesting. Well, I, I would disagree slightly, though, because I think that there are definitely things in physics like an Einstein-Rosen bridge. Maybe, maybe new technologies can make small Einstein-Rosen bridge, and you can actually travel across the universe just by bending space-time in some way that we just don't know yet. So I, I always hesitate to say things are impossible. It's only impossible as far as we know, but we can never say it's truly impossible because we just don't have all the knowledge. Well, that's why I devoted a chapter in uh, Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men. If you're talking about sending a physical craft of a certain size between here and the nearest stars, you're going to have to move at a significant velocity uh, in order to uh, get them there. Uh, within a few thousand years. Uh, you know, even if you got beings that can live 10,000 years, uh, you still got a problem because uh, if you try to go very fast, your spaceship will be destroyed if it's made of any kind of uh, material matter. Well, that's and it's, it's, just to yeah. clarify, that's why I mentioned an Einstein Rosen bridge because it just takes the two points of space and moves them together. And so your ship doesn't actually move fast at all, it's just normal speed. But because you put a hole in space time, you can just travel from two very distant places very quickly without any additional physics. Well, I have physicist friends, for example, who say that, uh, you know, if you can 
bend uh, the space time uh, through making adjustments uh, in your ship, uh, you can actually go uh, close to the speed of light. The problem is you've got to convert the mass of Jupiter into pure energy every second to make that happen. And so now you've got a problem. How are you going to be able to come up with an energy source equivalent to converting 100% of Jupiter into energy every second? Black holes. I mean, it's not impossible, but it does uh, stretch credulity to speculate something of that nature. We maybe we'll go to the next question as we do have others that are related in a way. This this one's not. This is more on Converse Contender. Thanks for your super chat. They said, "Would I would pay money to see Dr. Ross and Dr. Heiser on this topic?" Well, who knows? Maybe someday. Appreciate that. iPhone Musings. Thanks for your support in that super chat and. Thanks for yours, Michael Dresden. A challenge for you, Tom, an old uh, nemesis of yours from the Super Chat says, uh, Theist gives evidence violating laws of physics, suggesting supernatural. Tom replies with, quote, that's just the laws of physics we know of. Uh, I think there is yeah, there... Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious. Like You can't ever present evidence of anything violating the laws of physics because we don't know all the laws of physics. You can only present evidence of something violating the known laws of physics. Everything in human knowledge is tentative and provisional. This is the stuff we currently know about. So saying that there is something that, an interaction that we can't produce by combining our known laws of physics doesn't mean there's something supernatural there. That's just a basic argument from ignorance. It's not this, therefore, X. That's how the structure of an argument from ignorance. So all you're saying when you're saying it's outside of the laws of physics is really it's outside of the known laws of physics, not outside of all of physics. Gotcha. And thanks for your question. This one comes in from Matt Powell's pet pterodactyl. Uh, thanks for your support. And Leo Phileas, who asked, Dr. Ross, can you explain how a non-physical thing causes physical effects? And... How do we determine that it was indeed a non-physical cause for that said effect? What is the mechanism? Hey, the reason why I'm saying is that it's a non-physical uh, effect, something outside of the dimensions of the universe, is because it's producing uh, physical impacts that are significant. We're not talking something that's trivial. The fact that you see a large crater where the ground is depressed by a foot or more uh, where all the snow is melted, the vegetation is damaged, and is damaged in a way that can't be explained by known radiation phenomena. This tells me that something significant is happening, the fact that there's no sonic boom or heat friction. And so, and again, I'm not alone in saying this. Everybody uh, who had a PhD level in physics has studied this has drawn the same conclusion. We're dealing with something that has significant power that's operating outside of the laws of physics and the space-time dimensions. Gotcha. And thanks for your question. This one comes in from, let's see. Sentinel Apologetics, appreciate it, said, Hugh, please elaborate on the key fact of fine-tuning that since there is no possibility for extraterrestrial life, then residual UFO phenomena must be supernatural. Yeah, in the sense that uh, if we're talking about physical beings like us on another planetary system, building a spacecraft and traveling here, I mean, people have speculated that such aliens, for example, helped the Egyptians build the pyramids. 
then you have to explain uh, within known physics how they got here. And if you're going to appeal to unknown physics, you have to explain why we've not been able to observe their effects in the universe. I mean, this is what's constraining speculation amongst astronomers and physicists about these unknown physics. Yes, I agree with Tom. There could be laws of physics and constants of physics we've not yet discovered, but they have to be at a sufficiently low level to avoid discovery at this point, which is why I made the comment, yeah, we're willing to make measurements to 30 places of the decimal. Maybe we'll find some subtle uh, addition to what we know about physics, but it will be subtle. It's not going to be dramatic enough to explain how physical beings like us could travel across interstellar space. Moreover, uh, what I can tell you as an astronomer, everywhere we look in the universe, outside of our planetary system, we see physical conditions that are hostile for the existence of any life form beyond a microbe. I mean, we've been looking. I mean, when you watch those Star Wars movies, they all begin with a galaxy far, far away. As an astronomer, I got a problem with those movies because we've looked at stars far, far away and none of them have the characteristics that must be fine-tuned to make possible advanced life in those galaxies. Ours is the only galaxy we can see uh, that has those characteristics. Our galaxy group has characteristics that we see in no other galaxy group, characteristics that are crucial to make possible the existence of advanced life. And I argue uh, reasonably, we can extend that argument out to super galaxy clusters. We can extend it all the way down to fundamental particles. In each case, uh, we see these fine-tuned characteristics uh, that constrain what we can speculate about existence of life elsewhere. Now, incidentally, I'm not saying we're not going to find the remains of life outside of planet Earth. I've been on record since the 1980s. We're going to find the remains of life on every solar system body except for the sun for the simple reason Earth has been so prolific with life for so long that when meteoroids strike the Earth, they export Earth's soil and deposit that soil on all the solar system bodies. And so I've been promoting uh, literally for the past 20 years. We need to go back to the moon because on the surface of the moon, we've got 20,000 kilograms of Earth's soil for every 100 square kilometers. And one ton of Earth's soil will have 100 quadrillion microbes in it. We can go to the moon and we'll find the fossils of Earth's first life. On Earth, we'll never find them. Earth's geology has destroyed them, but they should be there in pristine form on the moon. And I'm arguing that could be a huge breakthrough to giving us insights on the origin of life. Gotcha, thanks so much. And Stupid whore energy, as she calls herself, strikes again. Her question is, what about all of the habitable exoplanets that we've been cataloging? Yes, I've written on that, and you'll see a lot of it in the published literature. When they talk about habitable planets, they're talking about planets that orbit their host stars in the liquid water habitable zone. That's the broadest of the habitable zones, broadest of the planetary habitable zones. I mean, any orbit where we got the possibility of water existing between zero and 100 degrees centigrade would be in the liquid water habitable zone. But that's not the only habitable zone you got to deal with. First, 
a planet to be habitable, it must simultaneously exist in the ultraviolet habitable zone. Too little ultraviolet radiation, certain biochemical reactions crucial for life won't run. Too much ultraviolet radiation, you kill the life. And that zone is much narrower than the liquid water habitable zone. And papers been published showing that it's extremely rare to have the liquid water habitable zone simultaneously overlap the ultraviolet habitable zone. And in addition to those two habitable zones, there are 11 more we know of. And of all the 4,300 planets that have been discovered outside of the solar system, we can't even find one that exists in even two of those habitable zones, let alone all 13. Of all the planets we know of, including those in our solar system, only one exists in all 13 habitable zones. You get three guesses which planet that is. Gotcha, thank you. And thanks for your question from, this one comes from James W., who's been on to debate this topic. He says, Tom, you seem okay with the known laws of physics being violated. Wouldn't, let me see if I got that right. You seem okay with the known laws of physics being violated. Wouldn't alien technology be a rational explanation? And that would make interplanetary travel possible well the known laws of physics are violated all the time dark matter and dark energy violate the known laws of physics so known laws of physics are just the stuff we currently know about to violate them just means there's something we don't know about yet could undiscovered technology do it absolutely we have no idea what the limits of technology are like like you said it's going to take a lot of energy to do that and if we have a found a way to create miniature black holes we could potentially do it that way so or we could create a Dyson sphere and create energy that way. There's lots of different ways we could potentially produce the energy to do this with the known laws of physics, but there could always be more unknown ways to do it too that we just haven't discovered yet. So there's lots of different explanations for it. You bet. And thanks for your question. This one comes in from Sigifredo Saravia. Says, Dr. Ross, is Christianity or the Christian perspective, or sorry about that, in the Christian perspective, is it not arguable humans were created to be the only intelligent life or uh, to have the, I think they mean, or life's purpose? I don't know what they mean by that. If not, how do you deviate from the Bible to say that it's not true there's another, quote, perfection, unquote, in aliens? I think that... Yeah, I get the question. And this has been debated by uh, Christian uh, Bible scholars literally for uh, several thousand years. And it goes back into the days before Christ. And what you really see in this debate is that from a biblical perspective, you can go either way. Uh, you know, one uh, Christian perspective is that God enjoys creating to such a high degree, he's not going to stop on one planet. He's going to have created life on other planets. However, given the evidence that what we see here on planet Earth requires supernatural intervention, likewise, we'd expect it there as well. So the Christians, for example, that are anticipating, we're going to find life, including advanced life, on many other uh, extrasolar planets. But then there's another group of Christian theologians who are saying, when you read the Bible, it seems like God does not waste miraculous interventions without something that fits within his purposes. And given that the purpose for God creating the universe 
is to permanently eradicate evil and suffering while he enhances our human free will capability to express and experience love. He only needs one planet and he only needs one uh, species of physical intelligent beings. And so they would argue that we're alone. Uh, but if you look at the Christian debate, it's about split 50-50. And so as a Christian, you've got the freedom to believe one or the other. Although I've personally argued that if you look at Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, it seems to imply uh, that this is the only place in the universe where God has created intelligent physical beings that are in need of being redeemed uh, from their propensity to commit sin and evil. That doesn't rule out dolphins on another planet, but it does seem to rule out the possibility there are beings like us that are in need of being redeemed uh, from the, their evil. Uh, but could there be beings that, who have never committed evil? That's certainly within the realm of possibility. So this is an open debate. And many years ago, I wrote an article on this subject uh, with two other astronomers. All three of us were Christians, but all three of us held different views on this, basically making the point from a Christian worldview perspective, you've got options on where you want to land on this. As an astronomer, I can tell you, when we make the observations, all we're seeing are conditions outside of our solar system that are hostile for the existence of advanced life. Uh, we're not seeing the possibility, based on observations we've made so far, uh, that there could be these sites in which there's you know advanced life like us. You bet. And Spart344, thanks for your question, said in regards to the correlation of UFO experiences and the occult, how is it that different people seeing, how is that different from people seeing their religious iconography or figures during a near-death experience? Well, I don't know if you want to take that one, Tom. That's kind of a whole other subject, uh, near-death experiences. Uh, but I kind of put it in the same category as the UFOs, is that most people who claim a near-death experience is really not a near-death experience. Uh, but if you were to bring, say, Dr. Neil Sabovo on this show uh, as a medical doctor, he'd be able to make a case similar to mine about UFOs, that there's a residual there uh, where we got actual hard scientific evidence that indeed experience is something going on at the psychological level or it could be attributed to oxygen deprivation in the brain. I think he's asking like the kids who have near-death experiences see Santa Claus, Hindus who have near-death experiences see Brahma, Christians who have near-death experiences see Jesus, Muslims who have near-death experiences see um, yep, Muhammad. So, so the point is that the people who have near-death experiences all experience with a one-to-one -one correlation their preferred belief system. So how is the occult experiences uh, not the same? The fact there's a one-to-one -one correlation between personal experiences with aliens in the, in like close proximity being correlated to the occult seems to be the same kind of phenomenon where it's because they already have this pre-existing belief in their mind, their experience is then interpreted by their mind to be caused by aliens, just like uh, near-death experiences interpreted by the mind to be caused by your preferred deity. Well, uh, again, I could talk about, we, we interviewed this uh, Dr. Saboto and he said, you know, as a medical doctor, and a surgeon, he was very skeptical. Uh, but what he did is he would put written messages on the girders above the operating table. 
And so when people recovered from surgery and claimed they had a near-death experience and said, well, did you see anything written on the girder? And they said, yes, tell me what it is. Well, and I apologize, so, apologize for interrupting, but um, I think the, the questioner was asking, what is the difference between the fact that people have near-death experiences and only see their preferred deity and the fact that the correlation between the occult and aliens is the same kind of a thing where it seems to be a psychological oh, phenomenon. I get it, sure. Well, keep in mind from a Christian worldview perspective, you've got these angels in rebellion against God who are trying to move people, people away uh, from the Christian faith. And if there were anything that's not Christian, uh, they're happy with. And that's something we see is that in the occult, uh, they're basically trying to get you to live your life and die before you adopt the Christian faith. And they'll use whatever tools they have at their hand. So I'm not surprised there's a diversity. But again, what we've been discussing, John, Tom, is that when we look at the UFO database, we're looking at phenomena as beyond just delusions and wishful thinking. People are actually being hurt uh, by these phenomena. Their animals are being hurt. Uh, we got these crater sites. I think that's quite different from what people experience in these visions from near-death experiences. It's a vision. It's a whole lot different than a real crater uh, where you've got uh, physical evidence that something happened there, uh, or you got animals uh, who have got nothing to do with the occult other than the fact that they have an emotional relationship with the owner that does and that people that don't. So, I mean, these are the reasons why physicists are saying this is something that we can't just put underneath the rug. We have to investigate it and find out what's going on. Thanks. I think James W. from the chat had a, something to add to that, just saying the occult isn't the same as aliens, though. I think that James W. is arguing that though Jesus is like an example of something from the Christian religion, it's not clear that, let's say, aliens or the occult are an example from the other camp necessarily in the way that it's obvious that Christ is from Christianity. I we do have a new question that came in. Thanks for your question. This, let's see, we got that from James. Thanks James for that. Appreciate your uh, super chat input there. And thanks for your Patreon input. The next question, oh gosh, sorry, I closed the window, but I do have it here. Thanks for your question from Sohan D'Souza. Glad to see you again. Says, if our omnivalent being only needs yeah, one. Omnia, yeah. Omnivalent, the evil, omni-evil. Is that what he's saying? I've never seen this omni before. It's the omni, so O-M-N-I, and then V as in Victor, A as in Andy, L as in Leo, so omnivalent being. Like malevolent, but omni-malevolent? Oh, right? yes, yes, that makes sense. Okay. Uh, so what's the question? So maybe it means all good. If the only, if the I think it means all evil. Malevolent is evil. Gotcha. Let's see. They say, if this being only needs one planet and one species, why the vastly outsized quantities of extrasolar debris? I think they must mean omnipotent. Uh, they say, if, if this omnipotent being only needs one planet and one species, why the vastly outsized quantities of extrasolar debris and extinct species to get there? So, like, they're saying, like, extrasolar debris, like, things that you don't need, kind of like waste. I think is that they're saying. 
Yeah, I mean, there's two ways you could look at that question. Why a universe of 50 billion trillion stars if God only needs one planetary system? Another way to look at that is why 3.8 billion years of a half billion species of life that predate us if God's goal is to bring us human beings upon the scene? Those are two distinct questions. I could answer either one or both. Gotcha. What, what do you want me to do? Both sounds good to me. Both sounds good? Okay. Well, in terms of why you need the half billion species, uh, from my biblical worldview perspective, it's God's intent that there would be billions of human beings living on planet Earth with the wealth and technology uh, to be able to take the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ to all the people groups of the world quickly rather than slowly. And that requires quadrillions of tons of bio deposits in the crust of the earth. And so for that to be possible, you need billions of years of previous existing life efficiently laying down coal, oil, natural gas, limestone, marble, Egyptian, uh, gypsum, etc. Without that, we couldn't have our global high-tech civilization. As for the universe, uh, the total mass of the universe must be crucially fine-tuned to get the elements we need for life. Make the universe even the tiniest bit less massive, uh, then when you have the universe expanding from the cosmic creation event, uh, you get only a small percentage of the primordial hydrogen converted into helium uh, through nuclear fusion in the first uh, three and a half minutes of the existence of the universe, which means future stars will not be able to make any element heavier than helium. There'll be no carbon, no oxygen, no nitrogen. On the other hand, make the universe the tiniest bit more massive, then the future stars quickly convert uh, all of that primordial hydrogen to helium into nothing but elements heavier than iron. In both cases, you get no carbon, no oxygen, no nitrogen. I can make a similar argument that the mass of the universe must be fine-tuned to get the galaxies, stars, and planets you need to make physical life possible. If the universe is not massive enough, uh, then galaxies will never form. And if you make it too massive, uh, then the only objects that form are black holes and neutron stars. And so if you want stars and planets like we see here, uh, you, the universe's mass. So for two different reasons, the universe total mass must be exquisitely fine-tuned. Likewise, the age of the universe must be exquisitely fine-tuned. I've written a book saying there are 140 other features of the universe that must be exquisitely fine-tuned, assuming that God had other purposes for the laws of physics that he chose. And again, in my book, Why the Universe is the Way It Is, I detail all those different purposes for why the universe must be the way that it is. Thank you. And Sohan D'Souza, thanks for your response via Super Chat, said, but God can just create oil deposits. I think that's in response to what you said, Dr. Ross. Well, God could, but uh, then why do we see the carbon-12 to carbon-13 isotope ratio that indicates that it came from past living creatures? We see the same thing uh, with the uh, limestone and the uh, marble. Incidentally, that's an argument I get from young earth creationists. They say God could have just snapped his fingers and done it, uh, but he wouldn't erase the evidence of what he's done. That's something we see in the Bible, that God does not deceive, he does not lie, 
he's not going to erase the physical evidence of what he has done. And the physical evidence tells us there indeed has been billions of years of life that predated us. Gotcha. And thanks for your question. This one comes in from Slam RN. Glad to see you again. Slam says, Hi, this is Susan L. from Valparaiso. Can you talk about the super enrichment the earth and sun have of heavy metals, especially uranium and thorium? Well, that's what's interesting is that we live on this planet that seems to be the uranium thorium champion of the universe. I mean, if you compare the quantities of uranium and thorium we see on planet earth to what we would expect based on our measurements of the elemental abundances of our galaxy and of our star and of the universe, uh, rocky planets like ours, we have 630 times as much thorium and 340 times as much uranium uh, we got 60 times as much titanium. In fact, I've written a book making the point. Every element in the periodic table, we see these extreme anomalies with respect to planet Earth and other rocky planets uh, within the universe. But in each case, that extreme anomaly is exactly what you need for advanced light to be possible. If we didn't have that extreme superabundance of uranium and thorium, uh, then we wouldn't have a powerful magnetic field to shield us from cosmic and solar radiation. We wouldn't have long lasting plate tectonic activity to transform our planet from a water world into a world where you've got both surface oceans and surface continents. I could go on, but I think that's enough. Gotcha, and thanks for your question. This comes in from Pants L. Jones. Thanks for your question, said for Oh, Hugh Ross. They said, uh, Jason Lyle said decay rates have had been sped up by millions of times in a lab, and you had disagreed, which is true. Okay, I had a debate with Jason Lyle a, a few weeks ago. He's a young Earth creationist, and uh, we were basically debating the point, uh, have the laws of physics uh, changed by factors of millions and trillions of times? at the fall of Adam uh, or uh, Noah's flood or both. And I was making the point, number one, the Bible repeatedly tells us the laws of physics do not change um, and will not change until evil has been conquered and eradicated. And number two, we astronomers can actually measure the laws of physics and constants of physics in distant stars and galaxies. And we're looking at distant stars and galaxies we're looking back in time because it took light time to reach our telescopes. And what we see is at least up to 12 billion light years, the laws of physics are identical to what they are here on Earth. And if the laws of physics are not changing, uh, then all young Earth creationist models that have been proposed so far uh, fail. Every one of them requires dramatically altered laws of physics at the fall of Adam uh, or the flood or both. Uh, to sustain their interpretation of the Bible. But most of our debate was over whether or not the Bible actually teaches that the creation days are long periods of time, like I believe, or just 24-hour periods, like Jason believes. And I was basically making a point. If you go through all the creation texts in the Bible, read them literally and consistently, it rules out the possibility that these creation days 
for only six consecutive 24-hour periods. Gotcha. And thanks for your question. This one comes, this is a, uh, let's see, you've got a fan out there, Tom Jump. They said, support for my homie Tom all day, every day. Let's start a podcast, Mr. Rogan. Is that your new nickname, Tom, Mr. Rogan? I don't think so. I'll take it, though. <laughs> That's quite flattering. And thank you for your question. This one comes in from Sigifredo Sarabia. Appreciate it. This, I'm a little bit confused. I've never heard, but this is outside of my specialty, the idea of speed of space. Uh, Sigifredo Sarabia said, Dr. Ross, hypothetically, is it possible to travel faster than the speed of space if aliens are not in observable the observable universe how do we make contacts past that yeah i'm not sure what he's getting at but uh, we're talking about beings that are not constrained by the physics of the universe i think or the universe of space-time dimensions pardon me tom i think i know what he's saying when he says the speed of space you know the expansion rate of the universe space can yeah. travel faster than speed mm -hmm. of light i think that's what he means yeah okay no that that's true that uh, the expansion of the space surface of the universe is not limited by the velocity of light uh, because it's not anything physical that's traveling faster than the velocity of light. It's just the space-time dimensionality and that carries objects with it. So for example, uh, we go into the future, there will be galaxies moving away from us at greater than the velocity of light. Now, it doesn't violate Einstein's principle that a physical object cannot be accelerated beyond the velocity of light. So if you're moving from one spot in that space surface to another spot, you are limited by the velocity of light. But the space surface itself uh, can expand faster than the velocity of light. It's physical objects that cannot be accelerated uh, past the velocity of light. And yeah, right now the universe is old enough that it's expanding at the farthest distances that we can see along the space surface of the universe at barely under the velocity of light, which means a time will come in the future, not too distant future, astronomically speaking, when we'll no longer be able to see the light from the cosmic creation event. We can see it now. We couldn't see it in the past. We won't see it in the future, but we can see it right now. I think his question was, was can the supernatural uh, entities travel faster than that rate? Yeah, I would agree they can because they're not subject to Einstein's uh, theories of relativity. If they're not part of the physics of the universe, there's no reason why they would be constrained uh, by the laws of physics. So yeah, uh, they could go technically faster than the velocity of light because they're not physical entities. Thanks so much. And Slam RN for another question says, where, and this is by the way, folks, we may not get to any other questions. Slam RN said, where was our early solar system first formed? I think that question's directed at me, and that would be, uh, we see in the elemental abundances of the sun and of our solar system that it could not have formed at its current location or galaxy. Uh, there are many papers published indicating we had to form inside a rather large and dense open cluster of stars, probably uh, almost halfway closer to the center of the galaxy than we are right now, and got ejected from that cluster and sent out to the location where we are now, meaning that we were born in that part of the galaxy that was maximal in its abundance of heavy elements 
and wound up in a location that is one of the minima in terms of heavy element abundance. But there's one reason why advanced life is possible here on planet Earth uh, is because of that uh, extraordinary journey uh, that our solar system took when it was very young. Gotcha. I want to say thank you so much. That is the remainder of our questions. I want to say we really appreciate you folks for your questions and for hanging out with us today. And especially want to say thank you so much to Dr. Hugh Ross and Tom Jump. It's been a pleasure to have you guys on. Thank you. Thanks. Absolutely. And thanks, Mods, for keeping an eye on the chat as well. We are excited, as mentioned, we'll be back. We'll actually be back tonight. Tom Jump is coming back for a tag team debate. So that should be an interesting one. I don't know how Converse Contender got you and Godless Girl to team up. So that should be an exciting one. But want to remind you folks, both Tom Jump and Dr. Hugh Ross are linked in our description. So having listened to today's epic discussion, this is a really fun one, folks. Want to let you know you can hear plenty more and read plenty more from our guests at their links that are conveniently in the description waiting for you. So thanks so much, folks, and we will see you next time. We hope you have a great rest of your day or night.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.